You're listening to Crime World. Over Christmas, we're reposting some earlier episodes we made throughout the year. Human life meant absolutely nothing to him. The drug abuse was constant. He talks about flying into the house, baby or no baby, I don't care. They discovered um, M79 anti-tank grenade, two M75, the pineapple-style grenades, and plastic explosive sitting on the shelf in a shed out the back. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. They were Ireland's most feared gangland family, who terrorised the underworld and threatened the pillars of the state. Bonded by blood, the five Wilsons operated as guns for hire as they honed their skills as killing machines in the brutal world of feuding drug gangs and criminal rivalry. But how did one family produce so many assassins? And who mentored the Wilson boys in their careers as ruthless killers? This week... I'm talking to journalists Stephen Breen and Owen Conlon, whose new book, The Hitmen, The True Story of a Family of Killers for Hire, delves deep into the background of Dublin's most notorious clan. They tell me about the rise and fall of the Wilsons, how they killed for both business and pleasure, and how the end has been their own undoing. This is Crime World, a podcast from Sunday World. There's a tendency in, um, and maybe it's the same across the world, but in particular in, in Ireland, you find that there's a lot of family units involved in these drug gangs we're writing about. You have a lot of cousins and, you know, when you dig deep into them, you can find that some such and such is married to somebody else's. So they're all very interlinked and what makes the gangs, a lot of the Irish gangs, very difficult for the guards to get in on. They're not blood just trying ties, to... Yeah. Blood ties, yeah, yeah. They're not just trying to get in on a gang. They're trying to get their way into a family unit. But, um, well, look at Freddie. Yes. Liam Brannigan, Liam Rowe, the Burns, all related. All related, all Daniel, cousins. his, Christopher, the father. Yeah. Even, you look back at the Alan Ryan, Vinnie Ryan, Two brothers there. How do you break that? How do you break that? How do you get it's in? It's impossible. But um, what's really unusual and obviously what has spurred you to write a book on these particular individuals is to have a family of hitmen. Yes. I mean, that is... Guns for hire. That is unusual. Yeah. Surely across yeah. the globe. I mean, you'd have to go far to find this. Guns for hire like them. We have been writing about the Wilsons for years, but just to introduce them, what do we know about the Wilsons, Stephen, and their, their background. So when you talk about the Wilsons, you have three brothers, uh, John, Keith and Eric, and then you have their cousin, Alan, and their nephew, Luke. They're from a working class family in Ballyfermot. Alan Wilson's family live in New Street Gardens. So they are essentially a family who are from Dublin and who from a young age got involved in serious organised crime. But unlike many other families involved in serious organised crime. What is unique about the Wilson family is that they were all guns for hire and they were all recruited uh, by senior figures within the realms of organised crime in Ireland to commit serious forms of crime. So the three brothers, uh, Keith, John and Eric, grew up in Ballyfermot. 
um, Anne Allen grew up in the city centre. Was it the mothers that were related or...? Yes, yeah, so you have the three brothers, their mother Kathleen is the sister of Alan Wilson's mother, Mary. So they were very close even growing up. They had formed a very close relationship and because of the close relationship between the sisters, you also had a close relationship between the three brothers and their cousin. But then the three brothers had a sister called Debbie. She passed away through drug addiction, but her son was Luke. So he was essentially a focal point of the family as well. And the three brothers, if I'm right here, Owen, had suggested that it was their commitment in life and their policy to look after their younger nephew. Right. So in a typical sort of Dublin sense, the sisters probably reared the children together nearly. So you have nearly a band of brothers between the five of them. Um, And then... Alan has a sister, Maxine, who we'll come to later. But um, what about their fathers? Were their fathers there as they were growing up or were they absent? Well, for Alan Wilson, his father was John Cahill, who was the brother of Martin, the General Cahill. And from speaking to people in the New Street Gardens area who were very close to and knew of the Wilson family in that area, Alan Wilson would have looked up to someone like the general before his murder in in 1994. Growing up, he was the the folklore criminal. He was the individual that um, they somewhat aspired to and who they held in such high regard because of his notoriety. But when they were growing up together, they were all very close. Uh, They did have other childhood friends in their school years, but for them, blood ties were very important because it was the three cousins in uh, Ballyfermot and then with Alan Wilson. They were inseparable growing up. There were different age groups there, not not too much of, a, of an age gap between them, but they were extremely close as children and that progressed in their teenage years and also when they became adults. And did Alan identify himself as being the general's nephew? Did he like to put that about a bit? Oh, he did, with, without question. I mean, when some of the residents we spoke to as well had suggested Alan was a lonely child, he was quite an unusual child, didn't have many friends, but he did get into a few scraps, he did get into a few fights when he was growing up, and people were afraid of him because he would often use the name of Martin Cahill, that was my uncle, I'm just like him, I'm going to be like him. Mm. And I think ultimately he fulfilled that promise by getting involved in serious organised crime. Mm. And they were surrounded by it then as well because Ballyfermot, as they were growing up, would have been a place that was nurturing the likes of John Gilligan, George Mitchell, the Penguin, the Cunningham brothers, John and Michael, who were famously uh, involved in the Jennifer Guinness kidnap. You had a lot of criminality around them. And I suppose you have these boys who are growing up without a father figure and in a home where it appears in both cases, Owen, the mother, the mothers adored the boys. Yes, and, and certainly in, in the case of um, the Wilsons in Ballyfermot, uh, John, Eric and Keith, John fulfilled that father figure role when their father passed away early. And um, the younger brothers, Eric and Keith, very much looked up to him. Now, John, unfortunately, like many uh, children of his, his generation in Ballyfermot, he went down the road of petty crime. He was only turned 17 when he uh, was sent away for joyriding and car theft. Um, he could have been, a, he was a promising boxer. He could have potentially have been a lot more, but once he started off on that path, that was pretty much it. And um, Garda intelligence showed that um, Eric and Keith really looked up to John and they, they sought to emulate him. 
So John, he was he was a, a big guy. He was about six foot two. He was well built. He had his boxing skills. So he was offering himself around for as muscle, gangland muscle. And um, he was somebody who had a tough reputation and who they wanted to, um, whose footsteps they wanted to follow in. Mm. And, you know, there was no shortage of that kind of work, I'm sure, in the area if you had, you know, if you were that type, like you said, he was a boxer and he was obviously tough. Um, you could be employed probably quicker as an enforcer in a gang there if, like, the, the Wilsons presumably had no no completed education and no career path to follow, really. Um, so I'm sure he was, he soon found himself being somebody of interest to a lot of the gangs out there, a lot of the drug gangs. Who does he start working for first, John? Or Well, he seemed to have offered himself around quite a bit. Um, the first time he came to serious guard attention was in 2001, when he was believed to have been the, the driver of a motorbike used as the getaway vehicle in the murder of a man called Simon Doyle uh, in a drugs-related dispute. Um, what was interesting about John was, while he was perceived as a hard man and was very quick to use his fists if necessary, he wasn't considered a killer. Uh, the people we spoke to uh, said that he would be quite reluctant to uh, to, to shoot um, people um, it was quite ironic that his his uh, two younger brothers then went on to surpass him quite a bit in that area. But um, John, uh, he seemed to have a bit more level-headedness by all accounts than than Eric and Keith and when it came down to it. Mm. And what was the first sort of, 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 of all the Wilsons, maybe Stephen, who was the first one that moved into, or that we know of, that moved into actual, you know, hiring themselves out as a gunman or... Did they get training or how do they? How do you start in that career? Well, I think you start, in, the, in this case, I think we looked at Eric Wilson and how does Eric Wilson become involved? How did, does he wake up one morning and think, I'm going to be a gun for hire? But I think before he decided to get involved in this business, he was being groomed by his brother, John. So when it came to the point of him, you know, getting involved in this, and that was uh, the murder in, in 2005, um, you had someone who. I'm sorry. What age would have Eric have been at that stage? Uh, Eric would have been just um, on the verge of his 22nd birthday at that point. Right. Um, he was involved in selling drugs with a, a childhood friend of his called Martin Kenny, and uh, as is so often the, the case in these situations, a row started, and um, it got quite fractious. It seemed to have settled down, and then in May 2005, Martin Kenny was staying at his girlfriend's house. And uh, somebody who Gardy believed was Eric Wilson kicked in the door, went upstairs with a shotgun and uh, shot Martin Kenny as he was getting out of bed uh, with a, a round called a Brennica round, which is only used uh, really for stopping cars, speeding cars in the US. It's a, it's a metal kind of a slug called a rad buster by American police forces. So um, Martin Kenny had no chance of surviving that. And um, you mentioned earlier on the the, the plethora of uh, criminals which were around Ballyfermot at that time, one of whom was um, Mark the guinea pig Desmond, mm. who would have needed no introduction around Ballyfermot. He was uh, suspected of the, the two brutal canal murders uh, in Kildare in 2000, where two young men were, were killed again over another drugs dispute. He had been quizzed about the uh, the rape of a 15-year-old boy. He was a thoroughly nasty character. Mm. He was related to Martin Kenny. 
So after Martin Kenny's murder, he and uh, Derek D.D. O'Driscoll, who was another notorious figure around Ballyfermot, called up to Eric Wilson to have a little chat with him. And um, it's not quite clear how Eric Wilson talked his way out of it, but soon afterwards he disappeared down the country. And this kind of started a pattern where he, even though he was a city boy, he grew up in an urban environment, he seemed to prefer living in an, in rural, isolated places where he would be able to store what he needed and uh, stay off the radar of Gardaí. So he moved down to Port Arlington, became involved in some trouble there, um, beat up a man following a pub row, or row outside a chipper, I think it was, and then moved down to Carlow, um, where he again came to the attention of the Gardaí, who discovered that he'd been keeping a, a cache of arms in the place he was living in, in Killerig, down in Carlow. Mm. So he's obviously, that first murder was personal. He wasn't being paid by anyone. Yes, that, that, was, yeah. that was off his own bat. But as time was going on, um, Gardaí were receiving intelligence that he was involved in more and more serious crime. Um, you know, he was involved in several bookie raids down in, in, in Port Arlington. Uh, he was storing these arms and himself and, and Alan were hiring them out to other criminals for use. Mm. Uh, one of them uh, subsequently was identified as being used in the murder of David Brett in 2007 uh, down in Cork. And, um, you know, the intelligence they were receiving was that he was taking more and more cocaine. He was becoming more and more unstable. And by the time he committed two murders above in, Dund- in Drogheda in 2006 and 07, um, the word was that he was ta- he was receiving a kilo of cocaine as his payment mm. fee for, for these hits. And uh, he was using most of it for his personal consumption. And uh, one, one Garda who would have had knowledge of him said to us, we were told, this guy, you know, if you, if you come across him, he will not be taken alive. Mm. He'd already become so chaotic. But Stephen, you're saying that he didn't wake up one morning and do that to Kenny. He obviously was groomed by the older brother, John, and John had the contacts. And obviously his mind had been opened at that point that he killed his friend, his former friend, to the idea that guns were available, he had one, and that uh, killing was going to become a normal part of his life. So John presumably could see the business opportunities if you were willing to take up a gun, didn't oh, and you feel want to do it himself or was much good at it himself, but he maybe saw his younger brother's siblings as people who could who could do that and make money for the family. Well, that's where the grooming aspect of this, mm. um, this family relationship comes into play, where you do have someone like John who has the connections, who's already made these relationships with serious players and organised crime. So he's passing on his experience and his contacts to someone like Eric, who without question, would have had to have undergone some type of training how to use a gun, whereas at best to, to shoot someone, forensics aspects of when you're going to kill someone. So I think when, when Martin Kenny was murdered in, I think that the Wilson family could see, and especially John could see, that Eric meant business here. Eric was good at this. And Eric, perhaps because of his volatility and his cocaine use, wasn't afraid to do this. Eric, unlike John, was willing to go in. Human life meant absolutely nothing to him, so it didn't bother him one bit. But when he does his first kill, it's, he's only on a path where it's going to increase. And when we come to 2005, 2006 and seven, it's just a constant flow of him being involved in serious crime. And those serious crimes were the murder of individuals. 
And where is Alan during this period? Alan Wilson, the, the cousin who is essentially grown up with the Wilsons of Ballyfermot and is a brother and is equally probably as um, psychotic? Well, without question, at that time, Alan Wilson is under the Garda radar. Alan Wilson only has a minor conviction for a possession of a screwdriver dating back uh, a number of years. So, But in the course of our research for the book and the, the various guards we spoke to, Alan is also present uh, in Carlo uh, with his his, his uh, sister's partner, Fergus O'Hanlon, when the weapons are there. So Alan's only close friend outside of the family is Fergus O'Hanlon. Alan's main uh, relationship is with Eric Wilson, John and Keith Wilson. But Alan is still there. So Alan is involved in organised crime. He has access to weapons. But remember, one of the Garda reports that we obtained shows that Alan was very plausible when he was stopped at a checkpoint. Um, he was a carer for his mother, Mary. So he was under the radar. It's only in later years when Alan Wilson's um, uh, pedigree in organised crime is, is, is uh, comes to the fore and when the guards guardy identify him as a serious player in organised crime. But his association with Eric is still there. Mm. His access to weapons is still there. But it comes to fruition in uh, 2010. And that's with the murder of Mariora Rostas. Well, in relation to the murder of Mariora mm. Rostas, she's a young Romanian girl who came to Ireland for a better life in December 2007. She goes missing in January uh, 2008, off the street, uh, completely vanishes. The Guardian at the time think, is she a victim of an arranged marriage? Is she the victim of a prostitution ring? Is it a, an abduction where she's gone back to Romania? They have no leads, no answers from January right through until June of 2008 where the Guardi receive an anonymous call from an individual who claimed that he was in a pub in the south inner city and when he was in the pub he heard two men talking about the murder of the young Romanian girl and he identifies the two men, one of them he believes is either the nephew of Martin Foley, the Viper, or Martin Cahill, the General. He's not sure which one. So the Guardi are trying to ascertain who is this individual. They go through a lot of checks, a lot of uh, investigations. They can't pinpoint who this individual is. But it's only in September of that year when they receive another call, this time from uh, a woman who claims that Alan Wilson was behind this girl's abduction and murder. Mm -hmm. So that's when the investigation into Alan Wilson starts to take hold. That's when they establish his links to organised crime. They establish his links because of his family ties to Ballyfermot. They establish his links to people like Brian Radigan, Freddie Thompson, serious criminals, and also the INLA, people like um, uh, Desi O'Hare, uh, Declan Duffy. So there are links there, mm -hmm. and that's when he becomes the real focus of the Garda investigation. And when we say links in um, in the criminal world, we mean that they are likely associates they're, they're doing work with or for these people. They're being collated with them, which means they've been seen at meetings, that sort of thing for anybody who doesn't, who doesn't know what, what links are. But um, I think in the background there, and you detail it very well in the book, Fergus O'Hanlon, who's his sidekick, uh, who's in a relationship with Maxine uh, Wilson, Alan Wilson's sister, that they have witnessed something that they're struggling with. Well, in terms of the Garda investigation, as you know, um, in 2010, uh, the Garda, 2008, the Garda have identified Alan Wilson 
Alan Wilson and those people around him, his mother, his sister, his sister's partner, Fergus O'Hanlon, are all arrested by the Gardaí and interrogated, but they have no evidence and they're all released uh, without charge, pending further inquiries. It's only in the latter stages of 2010 when Alan Wilson is in custody on another matter, which he was subsequently cleared of at, at the, the Court of Appeal, when the case starts to unravel, when the Gardaí uh, received 123 phone calls from that Alan Wilson was engaged in during his time at the prison, where stories are being written in various papers. Alan Wilson threatens a journalist, mm-hmm. one of your former colleagues, Nicola. Yeah. He also threatens a, a guard. But crucially, when he's making those threats, he also threatens Fergus O'Hanlon because he's concerned that Fergus might be cooperating with the Gardaí mm-hmm. and he instructs uh, individuals to go and kill Fergus. But then... He reverts back to his support for Fergus when he tries to get Fergus O'Hanlon to kill the Sunday World journalist mm. and also mm. uh, the guard, senior detective. But Fergus O'Hanlon is brought back in again for questioning, as are other members or, or close associates of Alan Wilson. And it's when Fergus O'Hanlon is being questioned in relation to the plot to kill the guard and the detective that the guards play their ace, their trump card, the guards play a telephone recording of Alan Wilson threatening to kill Fergus O'Hanlon. And that's when Fergus O'Hanlon and promises to work with the Gardaí. So then he starts to work with the guards towards the end of 2011. And then he ultimately leads the Gardaí to Maria Rostas, um, her resting place in the Dublin mountains where she was buried in the shallow grave. Gardaí recover a bunker. They recover her remains. And the investigation takes on a whole new level mm. then where Fergus O'Hanlon decides to act as a state witness and to work with the, um, the guards. So Hanlon really only turned when he realised that he was as much under threat as everybody else from Wilson when he probably realised that uh, his own life was in danger. Isn't that often the way? It is, yeah. <laughs> he, he had, um, in 2010, he came close mm. to working with the Gardaí and then he got into a car and the, the two guards drove him to Newry in County Down and... During the conversation and during the journey, he said, I came close to telling you what happened, where she is, but I thought of my family. Mm. I thought of my children and my friends. That's how concerned he was. Mm -hmm. That's how worried he was about the threat posed by Alan Wilson. So it would have taken another year then before he decided to finally come and work with the Gardaí. And his allegation was that in Brabazon Street in the south inner city, him and Maxine were renting that property. That's where Mariara was held. That's mm. where she was shot four times in the head. And he assisted Alan Wilson in bringing that girl up the mountains and burying her. And he did this, he maintains, because he felt under threat himself. But at the time, I remember speaking to other individuals connected to the, the Wilson family saying that Alan and Fergus were like brothers. And they, they even had a pact themselves mm. that they would never rat, as they said, on each other. But by the time 2011 had come along, Fergus had gone, turned mm-hmm. a complete circle, provided information, acted as a state witness and testified against Alan in trial. So why is somebody like Alan Wilson, who we're suspecting at the time is working along with his cousin, he's working as a gun for hire, he's working as a professional hitman, hitman for criminal gangs and earning anything you know, from forty to sixty thousand to hit. Why is somebody like him suspected of having abducted a teenage girl off the streets in Dublin and um, doing away with her? I mean, did you 
you know, was there any reasoning Fergus O'Hanlon was giving for him ha- having cla- these claims he made about him? I think when you look back at this case, um, at the start of January 2008, when she did disappear, there was a huge media campaign. Her family were on crime call and they were completely baffled as to why this had happened. Like she had come to Ireland for a better life and then here she was, just three weeks into her visit to Ireland, she disappears. So there was no answer. There, there was no suggestion that, um, you know, something untoward had happened to her in the earlier days because it, it wasn't the norm um, and they hadn't a clue. They had, they had no idea who was behind this. That only happened in, ter- in June and September of 2008 when we had the, the, the calls being made identifying someone who was linked to organised crime and gangland crime. And once that connection was made by the Gardaí, obviously the question was, why would someone identify and name Alan Wilson as being involved in this, who at that time, the belief was that he was involved in serious organised crime. So why is his modus operandi changing to allegedly abducting kids off the streets? And I don't think that question has ever been answered Mm. because ultimately the person who abducted Mariara Rostis has the answer as to why they did that. Was it for sexual gratification? Why abduct this young girl off the streets I think one train of thought is that he deliberately targeted Maria Rostas because she was Romanian. She was less likely to go and work with the Gardaí. You know, she was someone who was expendable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why whoever did abduct her, she was deliberately targeted mm-hmm. uh, purely for sexual gratification and to abduct, to abuse, to torture and ultimately kill because to him, she was no one. She was, she was a nobody. Now, Alan Wilson went on trial for that murder. I remember covering it myself and seeing him face to face for the first time. He was a peculiar, small, um, sort of looked mild-mannered sort of an individual. I found him really creepy, I have to say. Um, He was just, uh, I don't know, he was sort of almost childlike sitting there. Anyway, he was acquitted of that crime. and he remained in prison on other uh, on other charges he'd been convicted of. I think there was a, a fear of what was going to happen when he was released again because he had been identified as how serious a criminal he was at that stage. But moving on back to Eric Wilson. So where is he at this at this point? He'd been involved in two serious murders in 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 Drogheda, going back to 2006 and 2007. The first one was uh, the murder of a guy called Paul Ray, who'd been caught up in a, a cocaine sting by Gardaí uh, the previous August. Um, the cocaine belonged to a fingless drug baron, Marlowe Highland. Many of your listeners might recognise him. He was a particularly paranoid individual, and he had fingered Paul Ray as an informant, even though Paul Ray had been charged with possession uh, with intent to, to supply. So... He had Eric shoot Paul Ray as he made his way to court in November 2006. And Eric appeared to have got clean away, apart from the fact that um, a near neighbour of Paul Ray's was also involved in the drug trade. His name was Roy Coddington, and he was a, a bigger drug importer than Paul Ray. He happened to be out walking that morning. He saw and recognised Eric Wilson during the shooting. And uh, Roy Coddington had his own problems. He uh, he was being extorted by the INLA. Um, he had given them €30,000. They wanted more. He couldn't provide it. And they gave him a severe beating and told him, pay up or else. 
So he, Garda intelligence indicates that he approached Eric Wilson. Um, he wasn't threatening with exposure or anything like that. He said, look, I was there that day. I saw you. I haven't gone to the guards. This proves I can be trusted. All I want from you is a weapon to protect myself. Can you sell me a Glock? Uh, Eric Wilson agreed to do this and a meet was set for March 2007 at Mornington Beach, which is down uh, down the River Boyne from Drogheda. Um, except Eric Wilson had other ideas and he shot Roy Coddington there and then uh, for fear that he would, um, he would turn state witness against him. So uh, after that, Eric moved to Spain. He came back and forth. He was involved in the the disappearance and uh, presumed murder of two Dublin men, um, David Lindsay, who was a drug trafficker and associate of his, Alan Knapper. They're believed to have been murdered in a house in Rathfryland in uh, County Down um, <clears throat> on the orders of um, Micah the Panda Kelly. Um, but he was basing himself out in Spain where he also carried out the murder of uh, Paddy Doyle for the Kinans in February 2008. So he's built up quite a reputation for himself as a hitman at this point. Um, again, he's using the same modus operandi he had in Ireland. He was living in a in an isolated uh, a ranch um, in in outside the village of Coyne in Malaga. It's about 20 kilometres inland. And um, he lived there and he had a couple of horses. Wouldn't have had much interaction with his neighbours, um, but would have socialised... Uh, further along the coast in, in places like Mijas Costa, which is a, a spot, um, it's one of those expatriate areas on the coast which uh, have a lot of English and Irish people living there. So in or around uh, June 2010, uh, he'd become something of a fixture at a bar in Mijas Costa called The Lounge. And he was quite well known there. Um, he was recognised as somebody who had a bit of a temper he had uh, he had been called a thick paddy as a joke after standing in front of the TV during a football game and had stormed out. Um, but somebody went after him and calmed him down. But uh, in June 2010, he was drinking outside the lounge bar um, in the company of a man called Dan Smith, who was an Englishman also on the run from the law uh, for shooting a man's, blasting a man's fingers off back in Essex. And uh, a row started over a girl and uh, Dan Smith was a lot taller. He was called Tall Dan, mm. uh, pretty imaginative. He was about 6'4", <laughs> six, 6'5". Six, and he was a lot taller than Eric Wilson. And uh, they squared up and uh, he told Eric to clear off. And uh, Wilson did so. Um, but he came back later on that evening and uh, shot Wilson eight, or Dan Smith, eight times even bending over at one point to take the trouble to shoot him once in each testicle, the autopsy found. So um, he was tracked. Um, everybody at the bar knew who he was. He was identified. And uh, the Guardia Civil uh, tracked him to this rural hideout where um, because of the nature of the crime, they were taking no chances. So they brought along uh, various armed uh, units I suppose the police in Spain are armed as a, as a matter of routine, but they, they brought in the specialist units, one of which was the bomb squad. And as it turned out, it was quite lucky they did because in a shed out the back of uh, the building where Eric, Eric Wilson was living, they discovered um, an 
M79 anti-tank grenade, uh, two M75, the pineapple-style grenades, which were more familiar to any anybody who's ever seen a World War II film, and um, plastic explosive sitting on the shelf in a shed out the back. Now, I remember covering this at the time, and the Spanish police were flabbergasted that anybody would have this type of material sitting in a in a shelf in a shed out the back. Um, and what would he have been doing or wanting to do with that? Was it collector's items at that stage? Well, no, I mean, this this stuff was, uh, it had been checked out in a forensics report and it was all in perfect working order. It was all from the former Yugoslavia um, and it would quite easily have been used to kill or maim with, with no problem. It never really came out in, in court when he was subsequently tried for this as to what he was doing with it. Uh, I suppose... We can speculate that either he was planning to use it himself. Certainly there were two English language manuals on how these plastic explosives and the detonators, which incidentally were in his bedside locker, yes, um, <laughs> could be used. Uh, there was also a manual on the AK-47 bullets that were found there. there were, I think there were 180 of them, rounds of ammunition. And um, he could have either been planning to sell them on to other criminals or to use them himself in uh, in assassinations. Um, but once he was caught for that, you know, mm. he, he, was, he was a goner. I mean, you know, he was banged to rights and in the trial, uh, it came down to actually one person who had seen him approach Dan Smith with the visor of his motor, motorcycle helmet up and, and shoot him. Mm. So he got 23 years for that and uh, later received five years on top of that for the explosive charge. So 28 years, he won't be seen free again for quite some time. Do they serve that amount of time in Spain? It's rather different to our own system. I suppose here you do a minimum of 14 years for life. In Spain, it's it's a bit more opaque. It, there are a lot of factors taken into account, including somebody's psychological state. Mm. But the reckoning is he'll do at least 20 of those. Right. So... Yeah, he's away for a long time. So he seemed to have been somebody who, like, I mean, he's suspected, we believe, of at least 12 hits. Um, He probably got paid significantly for for a lot of them. He's suspected of hits in Spain and in Ireland, uh, both north and south. So he did have a pretty good career, if that was your career choice. But he seemed to have this chaotic element to his personality that he couldn't control his own temper. Or, you know, we've seen a pattern there from the very beginning with him that he takes out personal grievances with the same weapon he uses to do his work with. So he was always probably going to come a cropper um, of his own undoing. But uh, nonetheless, if he wasn't taking cocaine and wasn't quite as volatile as personality... He could have had a, a lifelong career killing. So he, would, he wouldn't have discriminated against anybody in terms of who he shot. Um, he, was, he, did, he killed Paddy Doyle for the Kinnans in 2008. Um, he was involved in setting up Anthony Cannon, who his younger brother Keith shot on behalf of um, Mark the guinea pig Desmond. This is despite the fact that he had murdered uh, the guinea pig's uh, relative Martin Kenny back in 2005. So he was pretty much anybody who anybody who wanted him to work for him, once the money was there, he would do it. Um, but the cocaine use was something which was a constant. I mean, it was back as early as 2006, the Guardi were receiving these warnings that he was taking, taking large amounts of it. 
receiving a kilo of cocaine, which I think the, the wholesale value is around 30,000 euro. It can rise to 70,000 euro if you wanted to sell it all on the streets. But he was taking this for his own use rather than, than selling the majority of it on. So, you know, the, the drug abuse was constant and it finally bore fruit in terms of what he did that night outside the lounge bar in Mijas Costa. I mean, that was incredibly stupid. And all of his gangland associates really thought, you know, he's, he's screwed up here. And they were quite worried about what he might do in terms of turning state's evidence and per- perhaps uh, implicate them in that. Yeah, there was some wiretap evidence, I think, heard during his trial where they're discussing how they were worried, you know, he knew where the bodies were kind of thing. Um, how does a guy like that form relationships and settle into a community? Like you said, he was quite popular in the bar or he was, you know, I don't know, they just seem so outside the norms of society, people like that. You'd wonder how they, uh, but they do move amongst us. Like, Yeah, I mean, the Certainly, the only um, the only thing we came across in, relo- in relation to him having a sort of a normal existence was um, in or around the time of the Drogheda murders. Um, he was going out with a girl uh, from up that way, and when they couldn't find him, they pulled in the guardie pulled in the girlfriend and attempted to sweat her for any information. She didn't give anything up, but uh, he was so paranoid that he instantly cut all contact with her and never spoke to her again. Um, yeah, he in in that bar he was known as Lucky. I believe that's where he developed the the nickname Lucky. We never really got to the bottom of why that was, but he was a fixture in the bar. He would come in on his motorbike and he would leave his his backpack behind it, and he would inter- interact with um, with the others. He was quite friendly with uh, with Dan Smith. Ironically, in the in the months before he shot him, um, evidence was given at his trial. The bar. Re- owner Steve Reynolds said that um, Wilson had been introduced to him by Dan Smith who introduced him as as Lucky and said that he was living in a ranch with his brother Keith um, outside Coyne which was quite some distance away so yes he he did you know he could interact with people in a normal way Mm. but clearly you know when he took cocaine that psychotic side came out and unfortunately for Dan Smith he was the one who bore the brunt of it. So Keith, Stephen, the brother, and uh, back to the the cousins, or sorry, the, the the three brothers. We have Alan is then in jail. Um, there's fears of when he is going to be released, what he's going to get involved in here in Ireland. Eric has gone away for life. What about Keith, Luke, and John? What's happening with them? So in 2010, Keith Wilson is living in Spain. Um, he sees his brother. Uh, being sent to prison for life after the murder of uh, Dan Smith in Spain. Uh, So Keith, I think at at that time, overtakes and steps up to the mark where he fills the shoes and the void left by Eric's incarceration. So Keith um, has been already linked as the chief suspect in another murder relating to the Crumlin Drimna feud in 2009. So it's now 2010. Keith is living in Spain but Keith's brought back to Ireland from Spain because he's recruited by a veteran smuggler, Sean Hunt, who at that time was engaged in a, a, a feud with the Real IRA, namely Alan Ryan. Uh, at that time, you had the Real IRA extorting huge amounts of cash from criminals across Dublin. Uh, the, the Alan Ryan is essentially telling people that if you don't pay up, you're going to be killed. So 
in in 2010, Collie Owens, who works for Sean Hunt, at an industrial unit in North Dublin and Finglas, is shot dead by the real IRA. He's seen as an easy target. When this happens, Sean Hunt is livid with rage because um, Collie Owens is a good friend of Sean Hunt's. Hunt demands action, wants revenge, and he gets Keith Wilson to do that. So Keith Wilson comes back from Spain in August uh, 2010. At, by that stage, they have identified real IRA figure, a very notorious criminal, a very violent criminal, Daniel Gaynor, as the gunman and the murderer of Collie Owens. So when Keith Wilson comes back from Spain, his job is to uh, kill Daniel Gaynor. And he does that in August 2010, where he shoots Gaynor in front of his wife, in front of his, uh, of his kids, and also other kids in the area, in, in Finglas as well. But at that time, Keith slips up also because he leaves behind his weapon. He leaves behind a hoodie. He leaves behind a mask and gloves all containing his DNA. But following the shooting, Keith Wilson is immediately back on the plane um, to uh, to Spain, mm-hmm. where he stays for a number of months. But then he makes the mistake of coming back to Ireland in November of that year. But by that stage, the um, Gardaí have identified him as the chief suspect. They have um, DNA samples obtained as well, but they need to match those DNA samples to Keith Wilson, the DNA samples recovered from the scene. And they do that by uh, Detective Inspector at the time, Colin Fox, who sadly passed away, has the ingenious idea of obtaining DNA from Keith Wilson if he has a cigarette because Wilson won't uh, legitimately or hand over his own DNA or cooperate. So they clear out the yard uh, where Keith Wilson is doing his exercises. They know he's a smoker. He has three cigarettes but he also brushes his teeth when he's in custody and he has a, a cup of water. So when that happens, Gardy obtained the DNA from those items and they match uh, mm-hmm. the items from the scene of the murder. And lo and behold, Keith Wilson is the next member of the Wilson family to be jailed for life mm-hmm. for murder. Mm-hmm. And we have, at that point, John Wilson has stepped on quite a number of toes in his career and by introducing his younger relatives as possible gun for hires he eventually the gun is turned on him and he dies in 2012 yeah luke is the the nephew that is reared in the same house after his mother has has passed away um luke is young chaotic you can only imagine what it would be like to grow up in a house like that with those being the uh, the elders each one of them I think, uh, has to have been an influence on him. Yeah. He didn't have much of a chance, Luke, did he? No, he didn't. And even at that time in 2010, we see the implosion of the family where you have John still at the helm directing their activities, still being a father figure to them. In 2010, Alan's in prison in relation to an aggravated burglary in Blanchardstown. You have Eric in jail uh, in Spain due to be sentenced to life. You have also Keith facing a life sentence. So who's left on the outside? John and Luke. Luke is the baby of the family. Mm. So Luke is someone, even despite his young age, he also gets involved in organised crime. And then a few years after 2010, then John loses his life. So mm-hmm. John, John is shot dead because of the numerous enemies and the numerous um, feuds that he's been involved in over the years. So you know his history, it finally caught up with him, his past. So Luke is the only one left on the outside. But then he is very lucky as well in 2013 when his best friend shoots him in the head over a, a drug debt, but through the 
grace of God, Luke survives this incident. And even at the time, I recall Luke Wilson saying and pleading with other young people, he did an interview in The Star, not to get involved in organised crime, to stay away from it. Mm. And yet, you know, that's 2013, four years later, he's directly involved in the Kinahan feud. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, in, in 2016, when that feud broke out, there was, um, you know, hitmen for hire became a precious commodity here in Dublin. Um, and Alan is released from prison, as was feared. He immediately gets back into that game and he and Luke are eventually arrested in the process of trying to commit a murder which has been ordered by the Kinahan cartel. Now, they're caught bang to rights and um, both convicted and currently serving sentences for conspiracy to kill. Um, I think there was some wiretap evidence heard during the course of those proceedings that gave us a real insight into what was what type of people they were. Absolutely. I think in, t- in 2017, when Alan Wilson successively appeals his conviction in relation to the Blanchardstown aggravated burglary, um, Alan Wilson is back in the community. And the week of his release, like we spoke to former Assistant Commissioner Pat Leahy, who said following his release, the Gardaí had a, a, a meeting that week to talk about crime trends, to talk about current intelligence and what was going on. On top of that agenda, was Alan Wilson's release and a serious concern there that he would get involved in organised crime, namely the Kinnahan and Hutch feud. Because of his association in the past, the people like Freddie Thompson, the Byrne family, the suspicion was that he would become involved in the feud and offer his services to the Kinnahan cartel. They got their answer three months later when Gardy received intelligence in September 2017 that a number of individuals, namely Alan Wilson, Liam Brannigan, and uh, Dean Howe, all South Inner City based criminals were actively involved in targeting an individual. The Guardi at that time, it was run by the Garda National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau, didn't know who the target was, but they had identified certain vehicles which they believed the gang were going to use to commit numerous murders. They then went to the courts, they outlined their concerns to the courts, and they were giving warrants to place listening devices in the vehicles that they had identified that Wilson and his uh, colleagues would be using. So over the course of September, October, November, the Guardi launched a huge surveillance operation. And I think it gave an extraordinary insight because they were able to gain first-hand uh, accounts and details and knowledge of how the gangs, how the gang were operating, what their method of thinking was, their, their rationale and what they were doing. And they could see how they were intricately planning the murder for on one occasion they went back to the scene of the the target where they had um, identified they went back there because Alan Wilson had thought he had placed his hands on a fence so they wanted to clear it of any um, DNA by as the investigation progressed the guardie had identified that Gary Hanley a North Dublin criminal was the target um, they established that a tracker had been placed on his car so at that point, it was the uh, preservation of life was the most important thing for the guards. But as the investigation progressed, they had details of Alan Wilson talking about taking Viagra, taking vodka, chilling out with his wife, how the kids were doing his head in. So you had this normal life at the same time as he was sitting in the car mm. planning to take another life. I think the transcripts also indicate and show how he talked about how he'd been in pubs in the past where he'd um, uh, gone into shoot people in the past and on this occasion 
he said he was going to fly up the stairs with a machine gun, pointed at the two of them and opened fire. So that took to that knowledge that the guards had showed the intent that him and his co-conspirators had in relation to this enterprise. But as the investigation went on, it was only in November 2007 when Luke Wilson, Alan's uh, cousin, got involved in this enterprise. He was new to the party. But for him, again, a young man who had spoken in the past about not getting involved in organised crime, he actively is taking cocaine at six mm. o'clock in the morning when he's out stalking his victim. He talks about flying into the house, baby or no baby, I don't care. If the police turn up, he's going to shoot them too. So that showed his intent as well. And the recordings, you can actually hear him, you know, hoovering up the coke. And um, interesting, yeah, that Alan... Like I asked you, Owen, how do these people live normal lives? But Alan is talking about sitting at home and, you know, fighting with the girlfriend and, you know, getting fed up and they sound kind of normal too. So they they do. um, It's incredible. They're an incredible story. They've obviously been jailed and Alan is facing um, other charges in the special criminal court in in connection with another shooting. Uh, He'll be back before the courts. So, um... What's your overall insight, maybe, Owen, into the into the Wilson family? What went wrong with them or how did such a you know, how did they all end up, you know, in this in this uh, in this killing game? Well, I suppose the the, the guards that have watched um John, Eric, Keith and Luke all the way up along, uh, leaving Alan to one side for a moment. Um first of all there was John as a as a negative influence from the top. He was somebody who who was grooming them. Um, he was somebody who, you know, they all looked up to, wanted to emulate, even if they eventually surpassed him in terms of viciousness. There was also the other element of the extreme drug abuse. Now, in Eric's case, that ended with him shooting a man in front of dozens of witnesses, um, you know, uh, with his the visor of his helmet up. Um in Luke's, it led to, you know, him being uh, recorded sniffing cocaine off a car dashboard at six o'clock in the morning. Um, Keith also, I mean, incredibly reckless in the way that he behaved when he tossed aside the weapon and all the clothes he had used uh, during the murder of Daniel Gaynor. And even Alan, who initially, it appears, was somebody who would have had a clean living. He didn't drink, he didn't do drugs, but he became more and more involved in drug abuse himself. And there was one um, incident he actually bragged about in in the the wiretaps that the Gardaí carried out in those cars when they were trying to, planning to kill Gary Hanley. And, you know, he talked about buying a big bag of cocaine. He took a load of it. He was wandering around the street and fell down a set of steps and he lost his phone. He didn't know if the guards had it. And when he came to, he was in an ambulance and the paramedic was holding the bag of cocaine beside him. And he said, I grabbed it off him, ripped it open and threw it all over the place so it wouldn't be used against him in evidence. So a real theme running through this was drug abuse and the fact that the cocaine, it seems, made them feel invincible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And finally, Stephen, I, I mean, in many ways, the book is a triumph. For me, I think it's because I remember when Alan Wilson was such a feared character that he did threaten a colleague of mine, that the threat to life was so serious that there was protection issued on him and the same with a guard. And it seemed then, which wasn't so long ago, that Alan Wilson was untouchable, 
dangerous beyond belief and somebody who um, had full control. But in a few years, everything is undone. And while it would have been unthinkable for you then to consider writing a book about him, they're done now, they're finished, they're gone. And it's, it's a real sign that nobody actually is untouchable. Absolutely. I think the book has a start, a middle and an end. And the ending is the subsequent convictions of all the people that we're writing about in this book. Um, they have taken on the state um, the state has won in relation to Alan Wilson and Luke Wilson. The state, through the Guard and National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau, put a lot of resources into apprehending these individuals. They had their concerns that they were going to en engage in the Kinnahan Hutch feud. Um, that manifested itself in their uh, their plot to kill Gary Hanley. But I think it shows that there was a level of determination to have someone like him off the streets. And I think also, if you go back to 2010, 2011, there was a real circle of fear and a culture of fear around Alan Wilson, especially from someone we interviewed in the book, Herbert Klein. He was someone who had the emergency response unit come to his house when a plot was uncovered to kill him. But he's now speaking out, and his view is that he thinks Alan Wilson is finished. Because he, he's been in prison for so long, he doesn't have the same influence that he once had. There are other younger criminals out there willing to take his place. Even Alan Wilson, when he was jailed over the Gary Hanley plot, he said, and he told the court publicly, that he regretted getting involved in this. So I think his involvement in organised crime is now at an end. I think when he comes out of prison, Ireland won't be the same, you know, Dublin won't be the same. There will be different trends, different gangs. So he won't have the same influence. So it is a success story from a law enforcement point of view because these individuals who were extremely dangerous, who showed no compassion um, or who had no regard for human life, are all now behind bars for all our sakes, it's a, it's a very positive development. The tide eventually turns on, on everyone, I think. But uh, Owen Connan and Stephen Breen, thank you very much. Thank you, Nicola. Thank you. From sundayworld.com, this is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch check out our Facebook page Crime World with Nicola Talent.